Yeah, that's a good one. I don't know if you all really get that or not. You know, I mean, it's, you know, you got to be kind of a thinker as a Royals fan. We're talking about stages in the spiritual life today, so to kind of till the soil there, we thought, you know, we'd, oh well, you know how it is as a Royals fan. We were, we were just so happy this morning that the Royals cooperated all week and, and uh, confirmed exactly what was going on here by losing four in a row. So, um, like, see, told you so. I thought August is the stage where you begin to look for free tickets. So uh, that's just me. All right, but we are talking about stages in life, and in particularly the spiritual life. And I don't know if you do this or not, but uh, have you ever talked about um, that, you're on a, that your life is a journey? Have you ever said that? Like, ah, my life's a journey. I haven't arrived yet. I'm on my way. I'm getting there. Uh, I'm getting somewhere. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm on a journey. You ever talk that way about your life, you know? I, I think these days lots of people talk like, I'm on a journey. And I'm heading in the, some kind of direction. You don't even know if it's the right direction, but you don't want to go back to where you were. This morning, we're talking about finding your way forward if you feel spiritually stuck or if you feel spiritually disillusioned or bored or God seems far away or you're atheist or agnostic or something where you're like, I'm not buying any of that. I'm done with this sort of thing. And... If you feel like you're disillusioned with God, then you really owe it to yourself to read the story of Jonah in the Bible. It's only four chapters long. It's kind of buried there in the Old Testament. And Jonah is an Old Testament prophet. Um, And he wants to see, Jonah wants to see God crush the Israelites' enemy that lived to the north of them, the Assyrian Empire, and they have a big capital city called Nineveh. And Jonah wants God to crush the Ninevites. Okay, wipe them off the face of the earth. And you're like, well, wow, that sounds pretty cruel. But you have to understand the Assyrians were really quite evil people. This is like five or 600 B.C. So what's going on is, is they put the Israelites on a death march to Nineveh with the chopped off heads of their fellow countrymen hanging around their necks while they walk there. Just to give you a little taste of what's going on back in 5th or 6th century B.C. in the Middle East. Actually, it sounds a lot like the Middle East today. So anyway, um, God sends Jonah then to tell the Assyrians, the Ninevites, you guys better repent or you're going to get judged, you know, wiped off the face of the earth. Guess what? (laughs) The Ninevites repent. God doesn't crush them. They get off free. And this infuriates Jonah and he runs away. Now, in Jonah's world, and maybe your world, my world, in Jonah's world, God is supposed to punish the evil people and rescue and reward the good people. God is supposed to help the hurting and exact revenge on the bad. But it doesn't happen that way in the story of Jonah. So Jonah hits a wall, a spiritual wall, a belief wall, a theological wall, and Jonah says this. I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. Oh, but wait. Here's the way it's really supposed to be spoken with this inflection from Jonah. I knew. I knew you were a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, blah, blah, blah. Therefore, now, Lord, just take my life. Just kill me. I'm ready to die. 
I'd rather die than live. See, that's what's really going on. Because Jonah's speaking the truth. God is a loving God and slow to anger and relenting. It's just not working for Jonah's situation and his countrymen, his, his, his nation, his people. What happens when you believe in a gracious God, a merciful God, who loves you and your children, and that same loving God loves your enemies? What do we do when God loves terrorists, when God loves Fred Phelps from Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka? What happens when God loves them too? Because like Jonah, don't we believe in a loving God? You see, if human history has anything to say at all, it's going to say you and I are going to hit a spiritual wall at some point. We're going to hit a moment of disillusionment like Jonah. And we're either going to move through this wall or we're going to stall out or we're going to return back to the way we used to do things. And we're not going to grow up. The good news is that we're not alone on this journey. As a matter of fact, really since the beginning of Christianity, talking about moving along in stages and making progress in the in spiritual life has been with us all along. Way, way back, the doctors and the saints of the church, everyone from Augustine in the 4th century to John of the Cross and Julian of Norwich, Francis of, St. Francis of Assisi, Ignatius, especially Ignatius, Teresa of Avila, 500, 600 years ago, modern times, Soren Kierkegaard, C.S. Lewis, on and on and on, great spiritual writers talk about people moving through stages spiritually. And they even talk about this wall that people tend to run into. The New Testament even tells us that you have to move from drinking the milk as a baby Christian to move on to digesting solid food. Jesus said that if you, need to, if you want to grow up, if you're going to get anything done, you're going to get pruned. you got to get pruned back if you want to grow. Pain comes with change. So here's a little modern presentation of the classic spiritual journey up here with these uh, posters. And our job this morning, your job, is to find out which stage you're at or stages that you're in. So you might want to grab your little golf pencil there and the margin of the program or whatever you got. And write these down and kind of think about where you're at. This is also help keep you entertained while I'm talking. Uh, so warning, this isn't exactly the simplest stuff. And it's not as clear cut as it's going to look like. So, you know, put your thinking cap on here, okay? Early on, let's begin. Early on. These, are, these first three stages are the three outward stages of the spiritual life. And the very first one is this light bulb. It's a picture of a light bulb, and this one is called discovery. This is the one where you become a Christian, as we would say. This is the one of that incredible moment where you discover that God loves you. Somehow, there's this moment where you understand that even though you've done bad things, even though you have sinned, even in your brokenness of being raised as a latchkey kid and all the boyfriends and all the rest of this sort of thing, all of that doesn't matter because you understand that God loves you. And the light bulb goes on and you say, I can't believe it. Usually you're young when this happens. Maybe you went to camp or something like that or you've been in our student ministry upstairs. This happened for me when I was 16 years old, and I fell on my knees in my bedroom on a cold January Monday night, and I only said one prayer, God help me. I didn't expect a single thing to happen. And in that moment, for some odd reason, God's Spirit washed over me. 
I can't describe it in words or anything like that, even to this day. I'm just telling you, I felt God's presence. And I felt accepted and loved by God. Changed my life. Changed my life. Has that happened to you? You been through this stage? Have you gotten there? Have you, you know, seen and felt and experienced in inexplicable words this love of God? Okay. Well, then maybe you're at discipleship, which is the footprint. Footprints, it's the next one. You begin to follow Jesus. And I mean, you begin to really follow. You are devout. You are serious. You are intense. You begin to listen to CDs. You begin to figure things out. You go hear talks. You go hear sermons. You're, you are studying your Bible. You're not just studying your Bible. You are, you are digesting that thing. You're munching it. You begin to figure out which translation of the Bible is not only good, but right. You begin to figure out who's right and who's wrong, you know, because your parents' church, that's wrong, but now you're on it, you know, and you've got it figured out, and you're doing great, and you love Jesus. You understand, you know, this light bulb that came on, now you dissect it theologically. You say, yeah, I've been studying Romans and Galatians and even throwing in a little bit of Ephesians there, and I am getting this thing down. I understand I am saved by grace alone. I understand what the word propitiation means. You know, you're on this thing. And you are all over this discipleship thing. For me, I live there. I still live here. I love this stage. I, I love all this study stuff. I've got a kind of a Bible nerd thing going on or don't have a life or whatever you want to call this. But, but for me, I, when I was uh, young, I had a three-volume set that my aunt had left uh, from Arthur W. Pink on the Gospel of John, a commentary. What young guy reads a commentary on the Bible? Like, I don't know, but I did, and I loved it. When I was young, uh, post-college days, I had a few boxes and a guitar, a few boxes of books. I loved studying things. I could debate with people. I could do apologetics. I could argue with people. I knew what was right and what was wrong, and I lived for that. That was what I was all about. Are you here? This is a necessary stage in the spiritual life. You've got to dig in and figure out what you believe. You just will, whether you want to or not. Now, most churches are focused on these first three stages. They're focused on getting people to become Christians, discipling them with information, and I mean information, and then this next one we move to is productivity. It's the gears one. It's a picture of some gears, which means you begin to get the machinery down. You begin to figure things out. This stage is really predictable because after you've gotten all your learning done, somewhere about the same time, you begin to move into this third stage where you begin to understand you've got talents and you've got gifts. You've got spiritual gifts from God on high. You've got the gift of knowledge. You've got the gift of helps. You've got the gift of teaching and preaching and administration. You've got all sorts of gifts, and you begin to use these things. This is a powerful time, and everyone in ministry and in church loves you because you have something to contribute. You wake up early and go to Bible study and do your learning stuff because next thing you're going to do that morning is go help somebody and then go to work. You've got stuff going on, all right? You have uh, all of these wonderful things that people begin to love you for. It's external. I mean, it's outside of you. I mean, you're the one with the gifts, of course. But there's, everyone around you is telling you that you're such a wonderful Christian. How awesome you are. How faithful you are. How devout you are. And it's true. Right now, there's a whole group of these guys leading a float trip down in the Ozarks on the current river. They are living the life, man. They are doing awesome work. Everyone who's in ministry, 
understands this, and they feel the wind under their wings as they take off in the Christian life. Absolutely necessary. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ would not happen in this world without this stage. These are the people getting it done. Now, I said the first three stages are the external stages of the spiritual life because then we come to the magnifying glass. And this doesn't really have a snappy little title. It's just called the inward journey. This is the inward journey where suddenly, and this is going to happen somewhere in your late 30s or 40s or 50s, say midlife. Now, for Generation X, they tend to experience this sort of inward introspective stuff earlier because they're pretty introspective as a generation. So they get to the inward journey pretty quick, and it's a magnifying glass because they begin to dig inside themselves. They begin to understand that everything that they learned back here in their Bible knowledge, or a lot of things anyway, and things that they were doing, they begin to doubt. Doubt is the watchword for the inward journey. They begin to doubt everything. They may even doubt God and become disillusioned. They certainly become disillusioned with Christians and with church, and they may get stalled out here. They may leave the church. They didn't really stop believing in God. What they begin to doubt is not God and the whole concept of God, but how it's been taught to them and how they think about God. And they begin to get angry. They get angry at everything. They get angry at their kids and at their spouse. They get angry at life. They get angry at their job. As a matter of fact, they'll say, I hate my career. And they get scared because they can't tell anybody. They hate who they've become. They get disillusioned with everything in life. And people say they're going through a midlife crisis. Like, well, yeah. They begin to feel cheated and directionless. All of those gifts you did back here in the gears and the productivity, what was that for? I just was a, I was just a tool. I got used. And it didn't matter anyway. They get cynical. And they get uh, in this place where they can get stuck so easy. They still think God is somehow chasing them. But they got this bitterness going on. That makes it all feel so cheap. It all feels so cheap. And if you really have a good friend left, you'll say, I don't know if I believe in church and God anymore. I don't know. You can see why this can get so paralyzing at this stage. Now, there's some amplitude on this. Some people go through this really intense, and some go through it pretty lightweight. Some people pass right on past this. A lot of people get stuck here. And that's why we have this black monolith here. This is a wall. It, it doesn't look like a wall, but it's meant to be a wall. Okay? This is a stopping point right here. Bam! You get hit right here, and you go wacko right into this wall, and you fall down here, and that's where you sit. Arms folded, pouty mouth. Like, show me. Prove it. I won't believe you anyway. I'm done. 
the wall. The wall is where you come face to face with God. The image that comes to my mind is from the film Forrest Gump. You remember this classic Forrest Gump? Lieutenant Dan, Vietnam uh, War vet, amputee. And in the middle of a hurricane, he straps himself to the top of a mask on a shrimp boat. And he and God have it out. And he is up there cursing, cussing, fighting. And he's saying to God, is that all you've got? Like Jonah. Kill me if you got it in you, God, because I'm done. He's at the wall. Is he going to make it through or get stuck there? Jonah was in a crisis of faith. The God he thought was supposed to be his God and punish the evil and reward the good did not work out. Now, as far as we know, the, the book of Jonah ends with Jonah still stuck at the wall. <laughs> it doesn't have a happy ending. It's a really bizarre ending. It, it, you feel like, it, is there another chapter? Because it just, plunk, drops off. At the wall, others begin to kind of move away from you. You begin to move away from them. It becomes a time of fear and anger and loneliness. And we can end up like Jonah. If somebody would have asked Jonah, what's going on? He would have just said, you don't understand. You don't understand. I hit a wall too. I felt it coming for years through all my discipleship and productivity I was doing great things. Everyone thought it was wonderful. But slowly in there, brick by brick, I was building a wall. And I knew it was coming. It was coming at home. It was coming in my faith. It was coming in my ministry. The year was 2001. And I'm standing in front of a window on the 19th floor of a hotel in Chengdu, China. The room number is 1923. I'll never forget it. And I'm looking out at the thick smog and the lives of 13 million people in a single city. And I'm holding my newly adopted little girl who's only 12 months old. And I'm saying over and over to her the one Chinese phrase that I learned. Buku, buku bao bao, buku bao bao. Don't cry, little baby. Don't cry. She cried, cried. I cried. My wife cried. This was supposed to be the happiest moment of our life, getting this baby. And instead, what was going on is our whole life was crushing in on herself. And I could feel her loss of her life, of not having a mom and a dad. And I could feel our infertility crashing in. I could feel the whole thing happening right there. And in a weird stew of grief and happiness, everything was coming apart. And I was at the wall. Only years later did I learn that I, too, had issues of abandonment from my childhood. And I was identifying with a little orphan girl and her abandonment. What about you? The more I do ministry for 30, 35 years, I see 
person after person dealing with abandonment. And boy, does it cause havoc. Anger and fear and aloneness. What about you? What do you hear yourself saying when you're tired of finally arguing with all of your make-believe enemies who never know that you're angry at them? And you're driving along at night, late in the night in the summertime with the windows down, no radio, no sound, just the air rushing around your head in the blackness. What do you think about? What's going through your mind when it's allowed to freewheel? This stuff catches up with people, and that's why we talk about the wall spiritually. It's good to face your wall, whether it's dramatic or, or easy. It's good to face your wall, and you'll have to come clean, and you'll have to surrender yourself for healing. And that's what gets you through the wall, everyone. To move over here, this one just simply takes an open hand. I say simply like it's simple. It's not simple. But when you understand what's going on, it becomes the simplest thing. Because what happens into this, what we call the outward journey, once again, it doesn't have a snappy title. The outward journey is wrapped up in one word, acceptance. Acceptance. What has to happen is you have to begin to accept life, that you, the life you've been given. Namely, and let's just talk about the largest philosophical thing we can talk about. Namely, you are going to die. I kid you not. Because up until the first half of your life, you don't think you're going to die. You don't. But midlife crisis is for people dealing with the fact that they actually realize their, numbers, their, number, their years are numbered. They have a limited number of years. That is a totally human, healthy thing to think about. You know, I mean, you could talk about your sex life all day long in America, but talk about death? No way. That's the big taboo. You know, because Americans don't think they're going to die. We think it's going to go on like this forever. Look at the billions of dollars spent on cosmetic surgery. People trying to, you know, put off the inevitable. The outward journey is where you begin to understand and accept that you are who you are and that your true self is who you are right now. That your true self is who you are, are right now. You understand that hitting the wall was about living a falseness, a, a lie. That somewhere along here, in all of your goodness, you'd begin to live sort of a fake existence. And you, f you feel like a prop. And eventually, when you get over here to the open hand, you begin to say, yeah, that's right. I sin. God loves me. What more do I need to say? Somehow, you develop a divine smirk, as I call it. You begin to get a sense of humor about yourself. You begin to say, I am such a joke. It's okay. I need to, you know, put down the gun, step back in the window off the ledge, everyone. It's okay. Stop living so dramatic. I am nothing. Christ is everything. God loves me. And I need a new God. I believe in the same God, but I need a new God. A God who says, 
I've been here all along. I've been here all along. Where you been? The life of acceptance happens in this outward journey. And your anger is replaced with humor. And it's a smirky humor, humor about you. Now, this doesn't mean you're totally over it. Oh, yeah, you'll go back here to anger. And you'll go back to productivity. And you'll go back to discipleship. You'll go back to analyzing yourself to death and get sick of it. The thing is, you get humor here and you begin to say, like, God, get over yourself. You're way too serious. You no longer need to be top dog, master of your destiny, and all that sort of thing. And your heart begins to expand for other people. You begin to look at the poor and you say, God, why don't we do something about them? You begin to become a generous person. This is why grandparents smile. You know? They just are enjoying things. And if you're good at this sort of thing, you begin to wake up like on a morning like today and say, today is a beautiful day. It sounds syrupy and kind of Hallmark cardish or something like that. But you get up and you say, it's an awesome day. The sun is shining. The grass is mostly green. It's all good. And you just enjoy the moment. You accept. And God accepts you. This last one, I, I speak only from books because I don't think I'm there. This one is called The Life of Love. The Life of Love, some would point to say like a Mother Teresa or somebody got to this one. This is for the older saints, saints among us. This is the one where you move to a place in the life of love where you no longer think about what you do. You're no longer a human doing. You are simply a human being. Who you are is what you are, and you serve out of it. I had one dear old saint come up to me after last service and said, I think I am there. And I said, amen, I think you are too. You are totally free. And you serve. These are some of the most active people in ministry, by the way. They, they are just viciously active people. Mother Teresa, as an example, just would go to bed at 11 every night, you know, work you know, like back here in the productivity stuff, we're doing it externally. Here, it's all welling up from the Spirit of God inside. They do it out of just a generosity of presence, out of a love. They are powerful people. They don't care if they're scrubbing toilets in the inner city or, or board president of some international ministry. They take their business experience, they take their life experience, and they pour it into other people, and, they're, and they aren't doing it for themselves at all. It is an absolutely selfless place to be. They have jumped off the tower, and they are free. They don't care. They don't care if they are a martyr or if they live on for another 40 years. It's not about fame. It is all about love. Well, there they are, the six classic stages of the spiritual journey, plus the wall in there inside the fourth stage. Which one are you at? Where are you at these days? Now, it may not be clear, clean cut. You may be borrowing and begging and swiping from various ones. 
but as you kind of maybe take notes or whatever or have a conversation in the car on the way home, think about which stage you're at. Now, we all know the real question is, is if you're at the wall, how do you move through? How do you move through? And I just got to mention that. Because when you're at the wall, or anytime you're stuck spiritually, there is one important thing you have to do. And I'm not making this up. This comes from centuries of the Christian life and the church. You need another voice in your life. You need a spiritually mature person in your life. You need someone who will speak into your life and tell you that, yes, you are crazy and it's okay. You need someone to give you input into your life. Around here, it takes different shapes. On Saturday night, there's Mercy Street at 5.30 p.m. It's for people with hang-ups. And they come there, and people come clean. And people speak into each other's lives. It could be an author like C.S. Lewis or Thomas Merton, one of my favorites. It could be a spiritual autobiography or a biography of some famous person. You know, uh, C.S. Lewis included, or Dietrich Bonhoeffer or somebody like that. Somehow this other voice begins to speak into your life and set you free. The problem with the inward point is that you think you have to do it all alone. And that's death. Because you, you are a human being. And we, you have to have somebody else with you. You have to do this in community. Okay? And so you must find, it could be a, a counselor. I would def, definitely advise counseling. But you could talk to a pastor. You could talk to me. My wife and I are... Uh, Certified spiritual directors. You can talk to one of the other pastors around here or an elder or anyone around here that you respect as a sage, as a wise person. And mostly you have to invest some time into this. You won't move through the wall by doing nothing. You'll have to become active. Otherwise, you'll end up like Jonah, stuck, some old cranky guy who's worried about everything. I'd also advise going on a retreat. If you want to know how to do that, you can come talk to me. There's an open retreat this fall, but if you got really serious about it, you'd want to sign up for uh, two years of three retreats each year. It's called a generation, which, by the way, generation three will be on retreat in September, and we'll be going over this, all of these stages, and this is on the test, so you might want to start writing this down now, generation three. So I'm just kidding. There's no test. Um, but, and here's one other thing. We're going to celebrate communion here in just a moment. So servers, if you want to come forward, ban. All of the words and all of the teaching that you've gone through, you've now chucked in your doubt and your disillusionment. How about a ritual? How about a symbol? How about understanding without words, without using your head? What about a taste of bread and, and a juice? What about a symbolic meal? What if you begin to live a symbolic life? What if you begin to do out of, out of touching and feeling and smelling and sensing? You who have been through this, you understand what, a, what goes on when you move into an acceptance. You begin to live as a whole person. You begin to live in presence 
and you begin to relate to the idea of Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took the loaf of bread and he broke it and he distributed it to his followers and he said, eat this, all of you, because when you eat of it, you are participating in me. You are with me. You are a part of me. You belong to me. Just like the one piece of bread where we were all grains of wheat and we got crushed together and milled together and then the the yeast got in there, the Holy Spirit, and we all rose up, and now we eat it. And likewise, there were once a bunch of grapes, and then they got crushed. They got fermented, and they became something entirely different. That's us. And after giving thanks, he took the cup, and he said, Drink this, all of you. This is the blood of my new covenant. I poured out for you. And all those words, somehow we don't understand, because you just have to do it. Sometimes we take the Lord's table, we take communion, the Eucharist, and it's powerful. And other times we feel like we're going through the motions. It's okay. But involve your senses. And there is one other thing. There's little tables over on the sides. And you can't see them. They're in the, they're in the dark on purpose. And people go over there and kneel. And they confess and they thank God. Because there's something about your soul following the position of your body. You know. That when you kneel, something breaks. And it's a good thing. And you might be thinking, like, I'm not going to do that. No way. Like, well, wall dweller. (laughs) You know, think about it. You can sit back in your seat. That's cool. That might work for you, too. Go back amongst the people in the prayer circle, square. Would you stand with me, please? Now, Lord, we give you thanks for the gifts of this life. And pray, God, for everyone at every one of these stages. May you release them. May they come forward, even in uncertainty, even in uncertainty, God, and meet you here. And meet you here. In the name of Jesus Christ, we come. The one who went to the cross on our behalf, forgave our sins, restored us and healed us and rose again to give us a new life. In that hope. And in that expectation, we come expectantly. And we all said, amen. Come whenever you're ready. Let us pray. Now, God, I pray for those who the light bulb is coming on. They're in in that awakening that you would reveal yourself to them. May we be open to that. And for those who are in discipleship, God, in that stage, may they grow deep roots in you. And learn to love you and others. And for productivity, God, we give you thanks and praise for the people who use their gifts and talents to serve you. And God, for those in the inward journey and those who are in introspection and trying to figure out if they're real or not, may you meet them there. May they not get stuck at the wall. Rescue people from the wall, God. Don't let them be their own worst enemy. Lord, we give you praise for those who learn to accept their true identity that is in you with an open hand. And Lord, we look forward to the life of love where we are just so easy about everything. May we surround ourselves with people who are that way. We thank you, Jesus, for all of this. We thank you for feeding us with spiritual food. Now send us out into the world to bless it, to be your presence, and to love. In the name of Christ, we all said, amen. Go in peace.